Well, good morning. If we haven't met before, I'm Rob Jacobson, and I'm so glad you're here. We've been in this series called Relation Slips because there are things that we say and do in our relationships that cause us to cause pain to ourselves, cause pain to others. Sometimes it's because we didn't say something or do something, and we know we should have. And so we've been looking over these weeks of what it means to really love God by loving others and how we often limit that love to others and how we need to expand that love to others. We've been looking at how Jesus loved and specifically the ways that he emulated God's love. We looked at the ways that we sometimes choose religion over relationship and loving others. And we've looked at the ways that insecurity can cause us to compare or compete and how knowing who we are, where we've come from, and where we're going is one of the ways that we can have security in our relationships. And then finally, last week, we looked at this ways that we choose hypocrisy uh, or to be a harsh critic to others instead of choosing integrity in ways that we can love others. And so this week, we come to this place where we really have to go, okay, well, what about those people that are really hard to love? Like that person in your life who you would even say goes beyond being difficult, they might even be dangerous. What are the ways that we love them? Because God is looking to heal and love our whole selves through our whole lives. And so we have to come to this um, place where Jesus says, love your enemies, love even your enemies. And that's not hyperbole. That's something that he did, and we watched him do. If you've studied the Gospels, you see this. This is the true test of our faith. And this is where it gets really, really difficult. I was thinking about some of my uh, good friends who traveled overseas, and they were, they were stationed for work uh, for a year or two, and so they decided that this was going to be their adventure. They were going to do this as a family. They were going to go, and they were going to love wherever they were at, and they got involved in a church. They started loving people. Uh, turns out that there were some people that were addicts that ha- had found Jesus. They were in recovery, and they just did conflict a little different than someone who has grown up in the church before, and they embraced them. They brought them into their family. Their child or children did conflict way different than their family, and they, they continued to see God transform these lives. And even though it brought a little bit of inconvenience to their lives, and they, at one point, were like, wow, we just can't believe how much God is using this. And when they came back, I said, well, do you think that God could use you in this way here or wherever they lived at the time? And they were like, oh, no, no, never. Why not? Well, because we knew we were only going to live there for a year or for two years, so it was really easy to sacrifice. But we could never sacrifice like that at our house, like here, it, it would be too difficult to let them in. They might, I mean, I don't know how we would keep our house manageable or keep our lives manageable. And that's, I mean, no judgment to them. That's the rub. We often think either we can reject Jesus' words to love our enemies so we can protect ourselves, or we can accept Jesus' words and, and love people, but really endanger our lives cause us to kind of be wrecked in our lives. So I actually think that as I've studied this, we can love our enemies and protect ourselves from harm, especially if we understand what it means to love 
limits and live within healthy boundaries. So that's where we're going, and maybe a story will help. So imagine one day there's a man crossing this bridge that's over this deep ravine. And as he's walking along the bridge, it's not like it's super narrow. Uh, there's, there's plenty of space across the bridge. He sees someone else coming, and what's peculiar about this man is it looks like he's carrying a giant hose. He's got this hose wrapped around him, and he, he realizes that it's a rope that he's carrying, and he's not sure quite why he's carrying it, but the man stops him and says, excuse me, would you mind holding the end of this rope? And the guy says, sure, I guess I could do that. And the man says, thank you. And before he knows it, while he's holding the rope, he uncoils a few, like drops them around his feet, and then runs to the edge. And he sees that it's wrapped around his waist, and he hurls himself over the edge, and he's falling, and he hears this guy screaming, and this guy's holding this rope, and he starts sliding to the edge, and he's able to brace himself against it to keep from going over. And he's, he's standing there in this panic, and he's like, what did you do? And the guy's like, just hang on. My life is in your hands. What? And the guy's in a panic, he looks around to see if he can tie this somewhere. He can't. Then he looks around to see if there's anyone else crossing the bridge. There isn't. And he's like, I don't know how long I can hold this. And the guy's like, just keep holding. You're, I'm your responsibility. What? Now, the guy is super desperate. He's like, okay, I know I can't drop the man, but I know I can't just hang on forever. At one point, at some point, my life is going to give out. So he comes up with this idea, and he says, here, I'll keep holding. You start climbing back up. I'll even try and pull if I can, but you've got to start climbing. And the guy goes, are you crazy? Like, I'm hanging out down here. That's really selfish. No, just, just hang on. I need you. Wow, just a story. I know what you shouldn't do if this was you. And I say it because, not just because it's kind of a foolish story, because it's really a parable for how some of us feel in our lives. If we're honest, there's someone in our life that's asked us to hold their rope. It might be someone close to you. It might be someone far away. But there's this sense of stuckness for you. And I know what you shouldn't do, you shouldn't drop the rope because they've inconvenienced your life. But at the same time, you shouldn't just hold on forever as if you're stuck. I don't think Jesus did that. So, are you supposed to just find ways to keep living with one hand on the rope? Are you supposed to come up with this ingenious solution like climb back up. What would Jesus have you do? And I think, again, what God is inviting us to do is to learn when to sacrifice and when to set limits. Because we really can love limits. Now, I don't know how you feel about the word limits or boundaries as a teenager and young adult. I was like, these words are from the devil. These are bad words. I don't like limits. Actually, God put limits into the DNA of creation and us. 
The fact that we're human and we need sleep and we get exhausted if we don't need sleep, the fact that some of us are crabby on daylight savings time, is a fact that God put limits into creation. We can't live unlimited. We don't have unlimited power. The fact that God has a morning and an evening in the day, that he put lights in the sky to govern, that he put rhythms into the world is another way that God has put uh, limits into creation. And, and God brought order out of chaos in the beginning of creation. And he created humans to reflect his image, to cultivate goodness in each other, potential in each other, and in the earth. This is who he made us to be. And he gave us boundaries so that we could choose, or gave us boundaries so that we could demonstrate responsibility to those limits. See, if God didn't have us to choose, if he didn't give us the freedom to choose, then we'd be forced to be in relationship with him, which isn't love. And we chose to use our freedom without boundaries, which caused us to not have freedom. That's all Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But love and freedom are also the motivators of why God sent Christ. Think about John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. It was, it was for love. And Galatians 5 tells us that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Love and freedom are the motivators that God used when he sent Jesus to us. And now because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we are free. He's restored us to freedom and to relationship. And like in the beginning, you and I are given the choice on whether or not we'll use freedom and responsibility, whether or not we will love limits and accept limits or whether we will become enslaved again. In fact, I would say that freedom and responsibility are absolutely connected to love and limits. One time uh, at a parenting seminar, a teacher put up a giant teeter-totter, and the words love and limits were on either side of this teeter-totter. And the teacher's point was that we have to balance between love and limits, and that parenting is this balance between love and limits. And in theory, it's a good concept, but actually the model's flawed. It's not like when I start setting limits that I'm not loving. I can love and set limits. In fact, if you're a parent, love and limits should be something that you do. In fact, it's loving to set limits for your children. It's actually loving to have conversations and set limits with adults, too, and I think we do it often. So I would say a more accurate picture of love is this idea of freedom and responsibility and this idea of limits and sacrifice. See, last week we talked about freedom to evaluate others, Matthew 7. Evaluate others with the same standard that we evaluate ourselves. We have that freedom, and we're responsible to take the log out of our own eye, the big plank in our own eye, before trying to take the speck out of someone else's eye. That's freedom and responsibility. We've talked about how love sometimes requires us to lay down our life for another person, to sacrifice. And other times, you, you, in love, you set limits for someone, to protect yourself, often to protect the well-being of the other person long-term. So limits don't negate love. 
And Jesus does say we should lay down our life for our brothers and sisters. But remember, don't mean this sarcastically, Jesus laid down his life once. So when we sacrifice, there does come a point where our sacrifice is going to mean that we have to lay down our lives, and we might only get to do that once. We have to be discerning in that process. And I think there were many times where Jesus set boundaries. And so if it's helpful to hear it in a principle, I'll offer it this, that knowing when to, help, knowing when to set boundaries and when to sacrifice can help us prevent and overcome relation slips. So if, you're, like, if you love to write things down, Knowing when to set boundaries and when to sacrifice will help you in your relation slips. So Jesus, I think, modeled this. So we're going to look at three different places where he did. The first one is in Luke chapter 4. Now in Luke chapter 4, Jesus has just started his ministry. He's come back from the wilderness, and uh, he's in a place called Galilee. And he goes to Galilee in the region of, uh, goes to Capernaum in the region of Galilee, And it says in Luke 4 that it was on a Sabbath that he taught the people. And there they were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. And Jesus left the synagogue and went to the home of Simon. This is Simon Peter. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked Jesus to help her. So he bent over, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and began to wait on them. This is the Sabbath day. This is a day where they're having teaching, hearing God's word. They're spending time over dinner. They probably haven't had to work too hard at dinner because they don't want to have to work on the Sabbath. They want to love God and love each other on the Sabbath. But at sunset, it starts a new day. And at sunset, it says that the people came to to Jesus at this house who had all kinds of various diseases and sickness. And he laid his hands on each one and he healed them. Don't want to read over that too fast. Imagine, like, we have ERs, we have hospitals, we have care centers, but imagine that people were brought to Jesus. They didn't just have a sniffle and walk there. Some of them had stretchers. Some had the equivalence of whatever they would have for wheelchairs. Some of them had um, their arms in slings because they didn't have good casts. Some of them had swelling, bruises, things that, that anomalies that they, they couldn't fix. And they, the, it says in Mark, Mark retells this same chapter, it says that the whole town came to the door. Okay, so imagine going to the store on a Sunday. Some of you are crazy enough to do your grocery shopping on a Sunday afternoon. I did this once. I had a loving boundary set by someone. Like, that's very foolish. I mean, the aisles are packed, but there's one aisle, and the disciples, I'm imagining, are helping get the right people to Jesus, but they're waiting, and they're waiting patiently. We don't know how many, and we don't know how long it lasted, but it says he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of people shouting, you are the son of God, but they were... But Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Messiah. This could have gone on until the wee hours of the morning. So every one of the gospel writers 
is telling the story of Jesus. So uh, I was taught to picture this like uh, a 3D picture of a building. And each one of the gospel writers is, is writing from a different perspective. Okay, so you might have to pull out your artist or architect hat to picture this. But imagine there's just different people. There's four different people that are writing this story. They're all looking from a different view at the same scene. So some of the writers include certain things because of the reason that they were writing it. I think it's all still true. It's all still healthy, accurate. But Luke, for some reason, doesn't include what Mark does. So if you turn to Mark 1, after Mark tells the very same story, Mark 1.35, actually 1.34 says, Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He drove out demons. The same incident. But Mark includes very early in the morning while it was still dark. So after who knows how many people he heals, after who knows how long it's been, very early in the morning while it's still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went to a solitary place where he prayed. And when his companions came to look for him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. And Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So they traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So Jesus knew that as fully God, that this was part of who he was, that he had to heal people, that he had to drive out the demons, the sickness, and he had to show people the way to have life with God. But as Jesus was also fully human, He knew that if he didn't spend time with God, that he could become distracted. He could lose his focus on what he was called to do. That if he didn't actually have spiritual rest and physical rest, that he might die of a heart attack before he would actually get to go to the cross. You can only sacrifice your life once. So he had to set limits on when he would sacrifice and when he would he would set appropriate boundaries in order to continue this mission. It says after this story that he heals a man with leprosy. Remember, the leper couldn't come to that house because all those people would have been there and lepers were forbidden to go and touch people. They were also forbidden to go to the synagogue. So Jesus knew that if he was going to go out and travel, that was the only way that he was going to get the chance to heal someone who was so far off so far out. So if you're someone, maybe you don't have leprosy, but if you're someone who feels so far away from God that you never know that God could reach you, Jesus is saying, no, I have to go to those lonely places. Not only to pray, but I have to go to those places where other people might not go. Because even the lepers are the people that need healing. And so the leper, he heals the leper, and um, It says in Luke again now that the news spread about him all the more. So in Mark and Luke, the same thing is happening. Jesus is healing people. The crowds are realizing it. They are coming. He's getting more and more famous. And so as his popularity is increasing, he doesn't just keep adding Twitter followers or, you know, increasing his social media. He actually goes to lonely places and he prays. He spends time with God. He rejuvenates his soul. He trains his disciples He gets his rest. 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke also all tell of another time when Jesus' preaching ministry is increasing, and Mark adds that, that his family hears that he's close by, and they decide to intervene. They actually, Mark says, that they went to take charge of him because he's out of his mind. And when his mother and his brother stood outside this home that Jesus is talking at, it's in Matthew 12, someone says, uh, Jesus, your mother and your brothers and your sisters are here. They, they want to talk to you. And Jesus, instead of saying, oh, okay, I'll get to them in just a moment, he says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Anyone who does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. There's this moment for Jesus that, that he says, love your family, but if your family comes over your love for God, hate your family. In this case, his family is trying to say, don't do what God has called you to do. And that's where Jesus draws a line in the sand and says, I love you, but if you're going to keep me from doing what God has created me and called me to do, then I can't obey you. Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? Who is my mother? Those who do the will of God. And some of you need to hear this today. Because the love that you have for your family is so great that you're at risk of not following God's will. Now, if your if you're parents, especially parents of adult children, and you're offering wisdom to your children, and you're encouraging them to follow God, then young adults who have parents who are doing that, obeying them actually is honoring God. That's a good thing. But if you're parents of adult children, and really your hope is that, they, that your children just continue the traditions that you do, that you did, just because it would be really convenient for your life, then it's okay for your adult children to say, no, that's not how we're going to operate. And if you're a young adult who is, this is the important part, not living in your parents' house and not living in your parents' checkbook, <laughs> then then you can honor God and not obey your parents. That you can respect your parents and not always say yes to them. See, this is where we have to wrestle with what it means to sacrifice and what it means to set limits. The people of Israel are called Israel because Israel means to struggle with God and people and be still able we have to wrestle actively, spiritually, relationally, emotionally, physically. When is, this love, when is God calling me to love in such a sacrificial way that it's going to hurt? And when do I have to set limits so this person gets healthy, so I stay healthy? And so that's the point that we're in. Now, some of us are excellent at sacrificing to the point where our lives are a wreck because of it. We, we always say yes, and we never say no, and we have an unhealthy life for it. Some of us are great at setting limits, so much so that when someone's hurting, we don't lift a finger. Equally unhealthy. We need to live in that tension. That's where God, I believe, wants us to be. So just four practical things about what it might mean to set 
some loving limits. They, when you set your limits, it should be about protecting the other person and yourself, not punishing them. So for example, um, no one can read your, I'm learning this. No one can read your mind. So if you have a need and someone is invading that need, it's actually helpful and not selfish to tell them. Like, sometimes I like to mess with people by standing in their personal space. You know who you are if this has bothered you. <laughs> sometimes I do it just to see if you'll say, could you just take one step back? Just because that's who I am. <laughs> but don't wait until you're angry to communicate that limit. See, some of us, we, we wait until the boundary has been broken so many times that we're like, oh, that's it, I've had it, and then we communicate uncalmly. We should communicate a boundary or a limit calmly when it's not weird and when we're not angry. So, for example, if you have a neighbor who loves to go into your garage to get a tool, and you've said, like, hey, you know, you can borrow my tools, just let me know, um, when you, when you do it, but the person never lets you know. And it's driving you bonkers that they never let you know. And one day, they're in your garage, and you catch them, and you're like, that's it, I've had it. So you change the lock code, you build a fence between your you know, yards. That's not protecting yourself, that's punishing them. And it's awkward. We moved into a house that had like one side of a fence. And we asked, like my wife said, we should take that down, that's weird. And I said, we should find out why the fence was put there in the first place before we take that down. <laughs> now, it was still a really weird answer, but we actually became friends with those neighbors because we, got to, we sought to get to know why it was put up in the first place. And it was put up to punish someone, not to protect. So we communicate boundaries calmly. That's, Jesus did that. Who are my mother? Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters? Those who do the will of God are my brother and my sister and my mother. That was a boundary, but it was calm. I think we need to communicate boundaries before they get awkward, and then we need to communicate those limits and set them respectfully and unapologetically. Uh, maybe you're someone who's uh, got a mom who loves to call you all the time, even at work, like six, seven, eight times a day. It's okay to say, Mom... I love you. I actually like hearing your voice. I can't take your calls during work. They frown at personal calls during work. Can I call you when work is done? Now, you do that on the first time this happens, probably not awkward. You let three, four months go by, now it's going to feel unloving. But do you want a little bit more control in your calendar, or do you want to keep your mom happy? This is where we live in the tension. We set them respectfully and unapologetically. And then, and then we enforce consequences when the boundaries get crossed. We don't have to do this harshly. We, just, we don't want to overreact. Uh, changing the lock code and putting up a fence is overreacting. Okay? Uh, we don't want to underreact, though. Like, if you have a teenager and they keep breaking curfew and using your car to do it, saying, uh, don't do that next time, is probably not enough of an encouragement for it to stop. Some people don't change until the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. 
So it's appropriate to have a response like, uh, for every five minutes you're late, you have to be 10 minutes earlier the next time. Or you've come late twice in a row, uh, you don't get the car for the next week. It's, not, it's less about what it exactly is and more about that we actually have that boundary. And again, this is not because we want to just be like people that can be in control of our schedule. This is something we actively do with the Spirit of God because all people are created in God's image that he loves, that we can't love God without loving others. So as we enter into this place where we have freedom to live, but we also have responsibility to love and love each other, we have to go into this place that gets a little awkward. Now, why do we do this? Ultimately, as I've been a teammate and a teacher and a pastor, I've seen way too many stories of people destroying their lives. Way too many stories of people trying to help the person that's destroying their life. And they often will come to me and they'll tell me about the person's problem or the person's addiction. And it's, it's gut-wrenching. It's so tough to hear. And they tell me the stories of how they bent over backwards, how they sacrificed financially, relationally, emotionally, trying to help this person. And it's clear that they're exhausted. They're like the person on the bridge. They don't know how much longer they can hold the rope. And so sometimes... And because they love the person, they feel unbelievably guilty about this. And so sometimes they'll come to me and they'll say, what do you think I should do? And 10 years ago, I had a pretty good answer. I would honestly say we should pray about that. And it's a good answer, especially if you do that. And after we would pray about it, then usually they would say, I still need your help. I I still can't do this. And so then I would say, well... Jesus can help you with this. He really wants to help you with this. And he wants to help the person that you care about. You have to bring this to the cross. The cross is that place of restoration. It's the place of salvation. It's the place of redemption. It's the place where we understand what it means to be saved. We understand what it means to be released from that penalty. And, And so you have to bring that there. And they would say, I'm too tired, or it's too big. And I would usually respond with, I will walk with you. And you can carry it. And then they would say, I still can't. I'm not strong enough. I'm going to drop it. And that's that's when I made a nearly fatal mistake. one that almost cost me my marriage, my ministry, my family, my health. I said, I will carry that for you. Now, that might sound loving or maybe sound really unloving as a pastor, but again, why we do this is because the first problem was that I was taking part of their responsibility and their healing away by taking it from them. 
if they carry it to the cross, if that person that you love carries this to the cross, they're the one that gets surrender, that gets salvation, that gets restoration with God. They get to fully and personally experience that. If you carry it, you, they don't get to. The second reason was that now I'm carrying the burden and responsibility for something that God did not design me to carry. God designed us to carry each other's burdens in sacred community, not personal rescuer. And I know I'm not the only one that needs to hear that. And the third problem was, because I didn't love limits, this, isn't, this didn't just happen once. This happened multiple times. So I was carrying multiple people's burdens, and now I'm crawling to the cross and almost not able to make it. This is not how God designed you to live, just like he didn't design me to live this way. So now when someone asks, what should I do? I still try to ask them to pray about it. I invite them to pray together with me. I'll ask if the ways that you've helped and the ways that you've tried to rescue, if this has caused change to the other person, if this has transformed their life, and if they say yes, we rejoice. If they say no, then I'm learning to ask, how has this changed your life? And if the other person says, oh my gosh, it's destroying me. Financially, I just keep giving and giving. Or emotionally, relationally, I just keep giving and giving. Then I'm learning to say, Jesus doesn't want that kind of destruction. Maybe the most loving thing to do is to not rescue them again. Now, think about that, because for some of you, I'm guessing you're saying that sounds harsh or maybe unloving, but that is the story of God and us. To say, look, the ways that I keep reaching out is destroying me, and it's offering you a quick fix. It's not bringing you the healing that you need. God rescued us in the garden and then brought a family to show what it meant to be the redemption and the salvation, to be not just a blessing for that family, but to be a blessing to the world. And that family messed it up. And then God sent them uh, prophets. He sent them leaders. He sent them kings to lead the family, to lead this people, to be this healing place in the world. And we still messed it up. God was offering these fixes that may or may not have been quick, but they weren't working. Set limits, sacrifice, the freedom, and responsibility. And that's when God said the responsible, loving thing to do is to send my son. And even Jesus, as he realizes what it's going to cost to redeem the world... He says, God, if there's any way, could you take it from me? If there's any way, could I not do this? Now, God doesn't answer with a yes or no, but he does still go to the cross. I believe the answer was lovingly no. There is no other way. And we have salvation and redemption with God because of it.
where is God asking you to sacrifice? Because someone needs to see the sacrificial love of God. And where is he asking for you to set a loving limit? Not only for your protection, but for the other person's healing. May we be people who love well, sacrificially, but full of responsibility. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that we could love like you love, knowing when limits are what we absolutely need. When we have freedom and and responsibility. God, I pray that we would not be driven by guilt or selfishness or shame, but that we would be driven by your spirit, that we would be led by your spirit to know when to love like Jesus loves, and that would mean sacrifice, and when to love like Jesus loves, and that would mean a loving boundary. Thank you that you knew when to do that and that ultimately you sacrificed your life so that we could have life. Lead us, God. Amen.